There's so many of you. The microphone is a necessity. No, it's good for recording. So, welcome. Um, Pastor Sergey has off this week. Um, as I understand it, he's visiting Addison Street Community Church. Uh, he'll probably be stopping by as their service starts before ours. So don't be surprised if you see him after service. Say hello to him. I understand that Jillian and the kids are, uh, they took off there in Michigan with her family. He's going to enjoy a couple of days there. So very blessed to be here and share God's word with you. Uh, if you don't know me, um, beyond being extremely attractive, bald, I'm joking. I'm, no, come on, seriously. Uh, my name's Dave, and I'm one of the elders here. Very excited to share with you this morning uh, from the passage of Luke chapter 19. Now we're kind of in a transition period. We just, Pastor Sergey just finished Ephesians. Uh, in two weeks, we'll start the book of Daniel. So we're going to take a, uh, this two-week uh, break between those series to really just kind of focus on evangelism. Uh, what, what has Christ done and what does Christ call us to? And so uh, today we'll be looking at that particularly uh, in Luke 19, uh, verses 1 through 10. Now, before I get started, let me ask you, how many of you have ever been to a parade? Anybody? Was anyone brave enough to go to the Blackhawks celebration parade when they won the Stanley Cup? Is there anyone young enough and brave enough that did that this summer? Yes, somebody did. Not me. Uh, four years ago, when the Blackhawks won the Stanley Cup, there was a million people downtown, and they were projecting a million people this summer. And, and that's not me. Rubbing elbows with a million people. If the line in jewels too tight, uh, I, I, I can't have that, you know. But actually, years ago, um, 1993, I went to the Chicago Bulls celebration parade downtown. I was much younger then, and there are three things that stand out in my memory about that experience. Number one, I had hair, and I remember I had a hairstylist shave. My head was pretty; it was shaved thin, and she wrote in the back of my head, go, go Bulls, or something like that, and number 23. Uh, I was a big Michael Jordan fan. I know it's hard for you to believe, some of you, that I had hair, but at that point, it was, it was glorious. I remember I used to have, I asked the stylist to use the thinning scissors. Could you thin it out? It was so thick. And the older I've gotten, I realize it just thins itself out. So the second thing I remember about that day uh, as we celebrated the Bulls winning uh, the world championship, was that it was so absolutely hot. Uh, at one point, the Goodyear balloon hovered ahead. It cast a shadow on the crowd, and everyone cheered. I mean, for a minute, and then it moved. I mean, people were passing out from the heat. It was ridiculous. I'd never seen uh, anything like that. The third thing that I remember, it stood out then, and it stands out most to me, is that there were people... Uh, along the parade route, and then later in Grant Park, who had climbed the light posts, they, the, the arm of the light went way out, and they were actually sitting on top of the light. Not just where the pole and the light meet, right here, but all the way at the very end. And, and as much as I thought, that is absolutely foolish, there was a part of me that thought, you know, wow, what great lengths that, that these people go to, to see the parade, to see what was going on. Uh, and today, we're going to discover this morning, we're going to read about a little man named Zacchaeus. Many of you have heard the story of Zacchaeus in Sunday school if you grew up in church. Uh, but the story of Zacchaeus is this little man that went to great heights to be in the know. I think really that's what it's about, to be in the know. I, I, I mean, if, if 
a 10-foot-tall person sits in front of you at a show or a movie theater, don't you crane your neck? You want to know, oh man, why did I have to sit in front of me? i got to see what's going on. I need to be in the know. And Zacchaeus was a guy that was in the know and he wanted to know who this Jesus was. So Luke in chapter 19, uh, Luke's a Gentile physician uh, from Antioch, a close, faithful friend and traveling companion of Apostle Paul, tells us to what great height Zacchaeus went to meet this Jesus so that Zacchaeus could be in the know. When we look at our text today, we're going we're to look at three things. We're going to, number one, look at Zacchaeus' character. What can we learn about him? We're going to look at his example. Uh, what, what, does, what happens when Zacchaeus encounters Christ? Does he change? What changes about him? And we're going to look at Zacchaeus' Savior, this Jesus, the text tells us, Jesus who came to seek and save the lost so that we might know Him, so that we might know God. What excites me most about this passage today is that you're going to see it clearly shows us that when we know Jesus as Savior, He changes us. That's what it means to be in the true know. To know Jesus and He changes you. Let's look at our text. Read along with me, please, quietly. He entered Jericho. This is speaking of Jesus. He entered Jericho and was passing through And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on the account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have already defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me while we commit our time in this text to the Lord? Gracious Heavenly Father, we plead with you this morning to speak to us through your living word. Scripture tells us that it is living and active and that it's sharper than a double-edged sword. So would you use your word to cut to our hearts, to soften our hearts, to loosen our necks. I pray that as we hear your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit might be at work in us. That you might convict us of sin where conviction is needed. That you might correct us and that you might encourage us and lead us into righteousness. I pray that your Holy Spirit would regenerate hearts today, that you would place new hearts in those who don't know you as they encounter Jesus Christ, who came to seek and save the law. Praise you, God, that we have a Savior who seeks and saves the lost, and that when we know Him, He changes us. We commit this time in this text to you, And we ask that your will would be done. In the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Take a look at verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Now what we need to know right off the bat, well, first of all, we need to know what was happening with Jesus before he got to Jericho and why was he going to Jericho. What's important to know is that just prior to entering Jericho, well, I should say that Jesus was Jerusalem to Jerusalem. He was journeying to Jerusalem. Jericho was about 15, 15 miles outside of Jerusalem. So he's on his way to Jerusalem for Passover. Okay, but more specifically, to be the Passover lamb. There's a crowd that had gathered around Jesus and they were following him to Jerusalem. In chapter 15, just outside of Jericho, we hear about some pretty wild things that happened. And I think those, those wild things, and, and they're very unique and they're going to give us some context. So we're going to look at a couple things in chapter 18 that happened just outside of Jericho. Let's look at 18 verses 18 through 30. Jesus has encountered a, a young rich ruler. Uh, he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, Jesus speaks to him about the law. The man says, I've obeyed all of it. And Jesus says one more thing. And he tells him, give away all of his wealth. And the man is just busted, just broken. He leaves. He leaves sorrowful, the text tells us. But let's look at it here, 18 through 30. Well, let's move, let's move down to 23. 18, 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. This is Jesus saying to give away his wealth. For he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to inherit the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. We'll stop there. The rich young ruler said, What must I do? And Jesus said one last thing. The rich young ruler couldn't do it. Mark's Gospel tells us that Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But the rich man went away all jacked up because he loved the things of the world. He couldn't give up his wealth. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he couldn't do it on his own. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples, man, what hope do we have then? If the rich good guy, the young rich ruler who's obeyed the law, if he can't get in, then what hope do we have? But Jesus says, the hope is not in you. What's impossible for you is impossible for me. All things are possible with God. And then just shortly after this, uh, towards the end of chapter 18, Jesus heals a blind beggar. Uh, and Luke's Gospel doesn't give us the name. The other Gospels let us know that it's Bartimaeus. Uh, let's look at that text. I think it's important that we read that. Um, 18 verses 42 and 43. We'll start above that, 41. What do you want me to do for you, he said. Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. 
your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So here we are. The rich young ruler couldn't do it. He couldn't save himself. What must I do? He couldn't do it. Jesus saves a blind man who pleads, calls out to him, Son of David, Son of David, save me. Heal me. Jesus heals the blind man. It says the crowds rejoice. They're praising God. Now they're walking through Jerusalem. This is where they're at. There's much momentum, much excitement. There's a crowd gathered around Jesus. They were praising God for what He just did and hearing, healing this blind man. And then verse 2 tells us, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. They're now in Jericho. Now, if I, those of you remember when I preached through John, I love Apostle John. He's just a straight, straight shooter. What I love about Luke is his detail. Now, Luke was a physician, and his profession demanded that he was a man, a person of detail, and he gives us that detail. In the Gospel of Acts, he gives us the detail about the life and mission of Christ uh, in the book of Luke. In Acts, he gives us detail, detail about the growth of the early church. Uh, both of those books together comprise about 25% of the New Testament. Luke is incredibly detailed. And what does Luke tell us here? He tells us that Zacchaeus is a tax collector. But more than this, he tells us that he's a chief tax collector. And what we need to understand is that tax collectors, let alone chief tax collectors, were despised. This wasn't a noble profession. You see, the Jews were under the oppression of the Romans, and tax collectors were Jews who had partnered or bedded down, if you will, with the Romans. For the Romans, they were sort of a a necessary evil, if you will. They collected taxes from the Jews and gave them to the Romans. Not because the Romans treated them well or they made a great hourly wage. No, the deal was you get a cut off the top. If you were a tax collector, the Romans said, get what we want, collect taxes, you get to keep a cut for yourself. It wasn't regulated. If you owed 80 bucks to Rome, I could say, hey, give me 100. I could say, give me 180. I'm going to keep what I want off the top. This was known that all tax collectors made their money this way. And in fact, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, which meant he had others below him. And not only did they take a cut from those that they taxed, but they took a cut for Zacchaeus, their boss. Now, earlier on in Luke's Gospel, Luke tells us about Matthew. Jesus saves Matthew. Uh, Jesus goes to his house. Matthew, a tax collector, invites all of his friends. Some of those people could have worked under Zacchaeus. Perhaps this is how Zacchaeus has heard of this Jesus. Because some of those, maybe at dinner with Matthew and Christ, told them about this Jesus. We don't know. But what we do know is that Zacchaeus was despised. Nobody liked him. He was the chief of traders. You're taking our money and giving it to our pressers. And not only that, you're not being made to do it. You do it at your own gain. He was despised by Jews. And I feel fairly certain he was probably despised by the Romans. But he did the dirty work for them. This was a man that you tried to avoid. But Zacchaeus at the same time was a man who made it his business to know everything. If you sold a goat, if you bought a goat, if you sold land or bought land, he knew. And the guys that worked for him knew. Because he's coming after you to get money. Now I'm telling you, if I lived in Jericho at the time of Zacchaeus, and I was a detective, he'd be the first guy I'd go looking for information for. 
I bet this guy knew everything. And I think that's why he climbs the tree. What's going on? Why is this crowd around this Jesus of Nazareth? Who is he? What else does Luke tell us about him? He says not only was he the chief collector, chief tax collector, but he was rich. As if we, we hadn't already surmised that. Luke gives us more detail. He was rich. This guy was loaded. We don't know how long he was a tax collector. He may have been a tax collector for one year, for ten years, we don't know. But he made money off of people that he taxed for Rome, and he made money off of those who worked before him. He was at the top of the pyramid scheme. The text tells us in verse 3, And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on the account of the crowd he could not because he was small of stature. Now this is very interesting that Luke tells us this detail. Now apparently he was too short to see through the crowd, to see around the crowd, so he decides to see above the crowd. He climbs a sycamore tree is what we read in verse 4. So he could get a better view. This is very interesting to me. Uh, everybody knows who he is. He's probably the guy you try to avoid. He's short. Short enough he couldn't see over or through. He climbs a tree. So that all can see him. They go, oh, they know why he's in the tree. It's sort of, to me, bringing attention to his shortness. It, I think, be akin to uh, a four-foot-nothing person uh, bringing a step stool and climbing on it to reach a ceiling fan with a group of six-foot-tall people around him. It kind of makes you stand out. But he didn't care. He went to great lengths. He climbs this tree. And let's look at what verse 4 tells us. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. There is much desire. He wants to be in the know. Who is this Jesus? What's going on? Why is this crowd here? That he doesn't care that people see him. And verse 5 tells us that, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. He had to actually look up to see him. But there's no doubt that everybody saw him. And what does Christ say? He says, and when Jesus, the text tells us, when Jesus saw him, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. I think it's amazing that Jesus saw him. There's a great crowd around him. But he takes the time to see him. And not only that, then he calls him. And how beautifully he calls him by name. Earlier in the text, there is no, there is no recording that he calls Bartimaeus by name. But he knows this Zacchaeus. And he says to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, hurry, come down for I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today. Jesus calls him by name after seeing him, and then he desires to know with him. And verse 6 tells us, so he hurried. Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Zacchaeus received him joyfully. Now notice that Zacchaeus didn't say, no, I'm not coming down. Zacchaeus did not respond by denying Christ. He had never met Christ before. That's why he climbed the sycamore tree to see who this Jesus was. Zacchaeus didn't say to Christ, who are you to tell me and hurry and come down? Because you must come to my house. He didn't say, hey, that's not how it works. If I want you to come to me, then I'll ask you. Friends, when Jesus calls to you to himself, like Zacchaeus, you come to him. Because his grace is irresistible. And so Zacchaeus comes to Jesus. 
He responds to Christ's call. This is what happens when God calls us to Himself. We respond to God's effectual call. And we do so with faith given to us by Christ. In looking at Zacchaeus' experience, here's a beautiful glimpse and picture of what salvation looks like. Jesus seeks us out. He goes after us. He engages us. And just like He did with Zacchaeus, He does to us. He pursues us. He sees Him, He calls Him, and He knows Him. And the text tells us that when they saw it, they grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now who's the they? The they is the crowd in chapter 18 that was just praising God because He healed the blind man. The blind man, the 18 tells us, was fo- Bartimaeus was following Him. He was part of the crowd. And now they all grumble? Christ had done something amazing in healing the blind man. But now He calls a sinner, a despised sinner, a chief trader, a chief tax collector, a chief of thieves and crooks. Come down, I must go to your house. And they all grumble. If we're being honest, how many of ourselves find it hard to believe that Jesus would seek out and save sinners like old Zach? Sure, we get that Jesus is for the poor, the lowly, the prostitutes, but a despised person like Zacchaeus? Would we grumble if Jesus dined with politicians? And not to say that he's crooked, but if Jesus showed up today and he dined with Donald Trump, would we grumble? Would we complain? What if he dined with a group of Washington elites or corporate CEOs? Would we grumble? Or better yet, what if Christ dined with the Chicago Department of Revenue worker who just put a $200 ticket on your car? Man, I think I might grumble at that. Well, praise God that Jesus saves sinners, sinners like Zacchaeus and sinners like you and I. Lord, help us. May we never grumble that Jesus seeks out and saves those that we might despise. It's Romans 5.10 tells us that while we were enemies of God, that God reconciled us in Christ. I pray that we might never grumble when God saves people we despise. Let's see how Zacchaeus responds. We're going to see that as he knows Christ as Savior, he changes. And this is absolutely amazing. We're going to see three just in-your-face changes with Zacchaeus' life. A man despised by all. A man who'd been written off by all of the Jews. When Jesus saves them, He changes. When Jesus saves us, He changes. Verse 8 tells us, And Zacchaeus stood, he stood, and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Do you see that? That's true, genuine repentance. Jesus saves Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, confronted with the holiness and grace of God, repents. Behold, Lord! Oh, I would have loved to have been there at that moment when that little man stood taller than he'd ever stood before. And in true repentance before the Lord said, Behold, I give half of what I have to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody fourfold, what true repentance that we see, this change in Zacchaeus' life. The Gospel changes us. As you see, Zacchaeus started out the day a sinner, despised by all, a chief tax collector, a chief trader. But by the end of the day, he's changed. We see true repentance. This is what happens when salvation comes to you. 
You change. You're marked by true repentance. You're now in the know. You know Jesus, the Savior. There's a heart transplant that takes place. Theologically, it's called regeneration. Jeremiah prophesies about it. That God would replace this heart of stone, a heart that's against God, with a heart of flesh, a soft heart. That's a heart for God. And this is what happens to Zacchaeus. But check this out. Not only are our new lives in Christ marked by repentance, but there's another change that happens. It's a change in our affections. Did you see how Zacchaeus, he wants to give it away. His affections aren't like the rich young ruler. Maybe they remember the rich young What must I do? Jesus says, give it away. He couldn't. He walked away sorrowful. But there's a change in this despised little man Zacchaeus. He doesn't want it. I give it to the poor, half of it. Jesus told the young rich ruler, the good rich man, give it away to the poor. Zacchaeus says, I give it to the poor, half of it. Christ didn't tell him to. But there's a change that happens in his affections. And if I've defrauded anybody, fourfold. You see, it wasn't Zacchaeus' change that saved him, but the change that we see in his affections are because God saved him. Jesus says, you must come to Me. Come down from there. You must come to Me. Jesus saves us. He changes our affections. And Zacchaeus is a changed man giving up his wealth. This is evidence of Christ changing him. When Christ saves sinners like you and me, He changes us. He changes our affections. Looking at verse 9 and 10. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since He also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the law. Now there's no doubt that they, the Jews had written him off. He's not even a descendant of Abraham. What kind of dirtbag scum would work for the Romans, would take our money for the Romans, but also take it for himself? They'd written him off. He's not a descendant of Abraham. But what does Jesus say? Today salvation has come to this house since He also is a son of Abraham. Galatians 3.7 tells us that those who have faith in Christ are true descendants of Abraham. And furthermore, Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6 tells us that God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace which He blessed us in the Beloved. You see, looking at at Zacchaeus, looking at this Savior. Who is this Savior? Not only do we see true repentance, not only do we see a change in affections, but we see a change in identity. When we know Christ as Savior, we change. Our identity changes. Jesus says, you are a true descendant of Abraham. You are My Son. You've been adopted. God predestined us for adoptions as Son through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. We are adopted We're marked by true repentance. Our affections change. We're adopted. We're made children of God. Beloved, this is a wonderful thing. This is great news, not just for Zacchaeus, but it's great news for us. It means that we have a new identity. It means that you're free from being a drug addict, an adulterer, a thief, an alcoholic, a slanderer, a liar, a gossip, a cheat, a fornicator. You're free from being who Zacchaeus was. Jesus gives you a new identity. An identity that's no longer wrapped in a sinful sexuality. 
an identity like the rich young ruler who he couldn't let go of the things he loved. Jesus gives you a new identity. In Christ, you're freed from guilt and shame. You're freed from the shame of sin. What a marvelous Savior we have. Your identity is no longer bound to the things that happened to you. No longer bound to a sinful past. For those who have been abused and sinned against sexually, verbally, emotionally, and physically, you have a new identity in Christ. That's awesome. That's awesome. It doesn't just change us and make us cute little good people wrapped in cute little packages so that we might go to cute little buildings on every Sunday. He changes our complete identity. We're no longer bound by our sin. Maybe it's hard for some of us to wrap our mind around Zacchaeus. I'd never be a dirtbag like him. But let me tell you, I know my own sin and God saved me from it. I have a new identity in Christ. My affections are changed. And I pursue God with true repentance. That's my prayer for you, that you would pursue Christ with true repentance. Do you remember the rich young ruler in chapter 18 I've been speaking about? He asked Jesus, what must I do? And Jesus says, it's impossible with man. But it's possible with God. You see, it's impossible to save your, yourself. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, you must come to me. That's a huge difference between these two men. It's easier for a wealthy man to pass through the eye of a camel, is what Jesus said. How amazing that we just saw Zacchaeus pass through the eye of a needle. What's impossible with man is, is possible with God. You can't save yourselves. We can't save ourselves. But Christ can. And when He calls us, we respond. Christian, if your identity, if your identity has been changed, if you're in Christ, if you have new affections and new desires, share this good news with others. The last thing that Christ did before He ascended up into heaven was to give us a command, the Great Commission. It is a command. It's a commission of sending out. He says, share the Gospel. Make disciples. Baptizing others in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've been called to make disciples. To share this good news of a Savior who seeks and saves the lost that we might know God. That's what it means to be in the know. All believers are commissioned. Not just some of us. Not just those, are, those of us who are good at talking with people. But all of us have been commissioned to make disciples. That's Matthew 28, 18-20. Read it. And 2 Corinthians 5 amazingly tells us that we're, we're Christ's ambassadors. That God Himself, the text says, is making His appeal through us. There are many in this neighborhood who are like Zacchaeus. They think they're in the know. They, they know everything they need to know. They have everything they think they need to have. But they don't know Christ. They don't know the Savior who came to seek and save them. My prayer for you this morning is if you profess to be a follower of Christ, that you might see the lost. And what I mean by that is that you might pray that God would change your heart. You know that we are living witnesses of Christ in the land of dying. That you might have a compassion for those who are lost. That you might share with them the hope of Christ. Pray that God would change your heart and give you a burden for the lost. And then I pray that you would call, just as Jesus did, call people to Christ. Share and show the Gospel with the lost. Pray for courage. Romans 1.16 says it's the Gospel is the power of God and a salvation. It's not you. 
not your oratory skills or your personality or your nice hairdo or your baldness. It's the Gospel that's the power of God is salvation. So call people. Call the lost to Christ. And then do as Jesus did. Know people. Don't just do drive-by evangelism. Pop, pop, pop. John 3.16. See ya. Have a good life. Step into their lives and stay. That's what it means to know the lost. Oh, we're so very good at just giving a verse. But what if we just decided to step into people's lives and stay? To be a people who stay. We have a God who stays, who stays with us. He never abandons us. And if we were people who stayed with the lost, despite their sin, despite the fact they didn't respond to your Gospel message, if we stayed and continued to love them in word and deed, showing and telling the Gospel, pray that God would give you the courage to see the lost, to call the lost, and to know the lost. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, if you think the only change that you can have comes from a campaign slogan and it's slapped on most of the cars here in Chicago. Change. That's not true change. The people who didn't vote for that guy don't like that change. They want change. There is only one lasting change that happens through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He changes your identity. He changes your affections. I want to let you know that as the crowd followed Jesus through Jericho on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. What they did not know is that Jesus journeyed with them to be the perfect, spotless Passover lamb. And while Zacchaeus climbed a sycamore tree to see Christ, Christ climbed a Roman tree to die for your sins so that you might be able to truly see Him, to know God your Creator, 1 Peter 2.24 tells us that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Just like the young rich ruler, all his good deeds couldn't save him. He couldn't on his own change his affections. He couldn't on his own change his identity. And you cannot on your own change yourself. The only lasting change comes from Christ. We're sin sick. We're bound by sin, Scripture tells us. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans tells us that the wages of that sin is death. But it also tells us that there's a free gift of God, and that's Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of work, so that you may not boast. It's about what Jesus has done. So I pray this morning, if you don't know Christ, that you might call out to Him like the blind beggar, save me. That you might stand in true repentance, just as Zacchaeus did. Behold, behold, Lord. Romans 10.9 says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. Praise God for His grace. Praise Him that He gives us Christ who came to seek and save the lost. I pray that you might know the depths of God's grace. I pray that you might experience real change in Jesus Christ. I want to say that if you, if you know Christ this morning, if you've experienced that change, but there's a part of you that says, 
man, my affections, I'm still wrestling. I feel like when I first got saved, my affections changed, my identity changed, but now I, I, don't, I don't know who I am. I don't know if I'm any longer in Christ. I feel like I want the world and I want sin. I want my flesh. I, want to, I keep going back to the same thing all the time like, the, like we read in Proverbs. A fool returns to his folly like a pig returns to his vomit. If that's you, practice true repentance. Come before the Lord. Christ changed me yet again. Change me. Change my heart. Cleanse me. 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, God, it says He's faithful and just to forgive us. Not just forgive us. The text says He, he forgives us and He cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Continue to see your identity, your affections in Christ as you practice true repentance because He's faithful and just to not only forgive, but to cleanse you.